we're in a seminar for the Princess of Proverbs, in case that applause now has changed because you thought it was something else. I'm Pastor Tom Patton, and I want to lead you this morning in a message about Proverbs 31 woman because, as the grace uh, kind of uh, today said, over the years, the Proverbs 31 woman has been met with a myriad of different interpretations and reactions from both women and men in the church about whether this kind of model is a grandiose description of her entrepreneurial activities or is she a real woman that's to be modeled and admired. And we're going to hope to answer those questions. I've got a lot of material, um, so you may not want to go to lunch immediately. We'll see what happens. Some of this is going to be very general, but uh, it's extensive, so let me hope to help you. So we have to open to the uh, book of Proverbs, chapter 31, and if you have that, Doug, did you have a chance to read that? Excellent. So that saves me about 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> so as you know, if you've also heard it, the book of Proverbs has been one of the most weighty, profound books in all of divine scripture. It's weighty because it just really strikes at the heart of what affects us the most, especially if you're a parent. What grips you the most is your children, uh, your sons and daughters. And I say that because this book of Proverbs has been designed ultimately as a royal chronicle of parental wisdom. Get that? A royal chronicle of parental wisdom. And I say royal in the beginning there because in many ways we've come to understand the book of Proverbs as like a holy handbook on the preparation of a prince a guide for his life, and a guide as a compass for his soul. Uh, Thirty chapters ago, when this book first started, Solomon began this journey with the reader as if we were witnessing the most tender moment possible with a son who's about to leave his parents. He'd grown up under his father's rule. He had matured under his mother's influence, but now he's going to leave the home, and he's going to leave the comfort and the rule of their oversight And now he comes to a crossroads in his life, and he needs to know and understand what's the next step. He knew that one day he was going to rule God's people because he's going to be a king. He knew that one day he must go on and become to the nation like a father had been to him his whole life, a king who would show the way of wisdom. And so because of the greatness of this responsibility that he has... And the greatness of the responsibility that he will have to have, he listens to his father's words and he pleads with him, his father does, to not listen, my son, to all the many different voices. Good from here, so I'll just keep going. You never know. Um, I was breathing hard coming up, uh, trying to... (laughs) I think I blew it out when I was preaching, just, you know, I'm, good. Oh, I'm back, I'm back, oh, I'm in, I never went anywhere, but my sound is back. So, um, so now, as you know, from the very beginning of this great book of Proverbs, we're introduced, if you know Proverbs, to two women. We're introduced to two opposing voices that are going to be calling for his attention, voices that are going to beg for this young prince. It's the forbidden woman and lady wisdom. The Forbidden Woman and Lady Wisdom. I'm I'm sure you've heard of them before. We're introduced to the Forbidden Woman in chapters 5 and 7. She, as you know, is an adulteress. She's an adulterous siren who calls to the young princess day and night to come her way. She, this Forbidden Woman, searches out her prey in all the dark shadows and the streets, begging all who come by to come to her. If he listens to her, the father says, he's going to fail. If he listens to her, he is doomed. 
And then even earlier in the book, starting in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 8, we're introduced to another woman, Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom. Now, she also shouts into all the marketplace. She shouts to him to come and visit her. She personifies wisdom, and she is the voice that he needs to hear. So you have these two opposing voices in the book of Proverbs, the two polar opposites of what a prince is seen struggling with, the two voices that call dramatically for his attention to both promise fulfillment, but one is lying and the other has the truth. And I tell you this because this sets up the struggle, verses chapter 1 through 9, and then again at the end of the book, about these voices and who is he going to listen to. So then in chapter 31 comes another woman into our sights who is much more than just a symbol. She is more than just an ideal. She is seen as being real, and she's presented to us as the kind of woman a prince should marry. The kind of woman who becomes in living form the incarnation of wisdom itself. She is wisdom personified and wisdom personalized. She is, as I've coined her, the princess of Proverbs. The princess of Proverbs and the entire force of divine wisdom begs this prince to marry her. It's as if the entire journey through the book of Proverbs ends with the Spirit of God saying to us, like wisdom herself, if you find her, marry her. Become united with her. Spend the rest of your life with her and her alone because she can be found in this life. She is more than a concept. She is reality for those who seek her. Now, ironically, the book of Proverbs was written to a son by a king And the book of Proverbs ends by showing us how all the wisdom that it's been teaching and modeling now has manifested into a daughter who would be a queen. So through the entire book, we've been focusing on teaching the young prince how to take the throne. Now he's going to be taught as to whom it is that he should sit with next to him as he reigns. This is the quintessential fairy tale book ending of this book. And I think you're going to be surprised and how detailed description of this woman that the prince should marry is actually very amazing and profound culmination of the entire search of wisdom and for wisdom in this book. And that the reason he too is to seek out this woman is more profound and more life-altering than maybe you had once supposed. And I say that because the last chapter of this great teaching manual, Proverbs 31, verse 1 through 31, has to do with much more than just merely providing the prince a princess. It has to do with connecting all the incredible themes in this wonderful book together by providing this prince, and you and me as well, this protection for our lives to marry this one kind of woman. So since you've already had it read to you, I won't read it again, but what you have is a perfect climax to the book of Proverbs, the most perfect climax that could ever be imagined. And I say that because it's a stroke of genius to delay this most convincing portrait of how to live wisely until the very end of the book. And after being taught for 30 chapters about what true wisdom of God looks like in the life of a young man, we now have all the major themes and motifs concerning the concept of wisdom converging together in one final summarizing statement through the word picture of a woman who embodies the essence of what it means to live wisely. 
So I want to spend some time looking at this chapter with you, uh, how it depicts this wonderful woman. And I want to answer one question, of course, is she for real? Does this woman exist or is this just an ideal that we see in Scripture? And so to do that, I want to go over with you how she's depicted in this 31st chapter. And she's depicted in different ways. We're going to look at three different ways if you're taking notes. First, we're going to see she's depicted as the personification of wisdom. And second, we're going to see she's depicted as the protector of kings. And third, we're going to see that she's depicted as the portrait of a princess. So the personification of wisdom, the protector of kings, and the portrait of princesses. But before we look at this portrait, I need you to understand a very important detail up front in our interpretation of Proverbs 31. Now, in Proverbs 31, we come to the name of a man who was a king named Lemuel. We've never heard of this man before. It's the first time he's ever spoken of. He's never spoken of again in Scripture. We have no other information about him. However, the only thing that we do know is he had a mother. He had a mother. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle unto which his mother disciplined him. So what we know here is we had a king who has a mother. Therefore, she's a queen. She is the mother queen who had received an oracle by God, and she had been inspired by God to communicate these following words to her son, and then he would in return take these words and communicate them to his son as his mother had done to him. So if you're following, the king Limulek uh, mother given to us through him is telling his prince son the oracle of his queen mother. She, he's saying, in essence, son, this is what my mother said to me. So it's kind of interesting to take that concept. These are the words of a woman telling her son what kind of woman he needs. And so now the son is telling his son the same thing. So let's look at the way that this is depicted. And again, these are very broad strokes. I think you're going to be encouraged, though, as we go through it. Number one, the first way that this woman, Proverbs 30 woman, the, the princess of Proverbs is depicted is the, by the personification of wisdom. The personification of wisdom. When I use this word personification, just so you know, what I mean is it's a symbolic summation, summarize, excuse me, a symbolic summation concerning all of the book of Proverbs has been trying to teach us about wisdom brought together in this single idea of a woman. Now, if you've ever studied Proverbs, you're going to know, as I said earlier, we've been faced with these two other women in the book, the forbidden woman and lady wisdom. And so Solomon here is representing those two opposing forces in the first nine chapters by giving him now a culmination of what this true woman that he should be seeking is. And this is so powerful that Solomon ultimately contrasts everything, listen, that can kill this young prince with everything that can give him life by picturing two kinds of women. The earthly woman is seductive and forbidden. The heavenly woman is seductive as well, but her wooing is vital and necessary to give him life. So every feature that adulteresses possess can find their counterpoint in God's wisdom. Let me say that again. Every feature that you see that the adulteress possesses can find their counterpart in God's wisdom. And every desire that the young prince has to be satisfied perfectly, completely, and sufficiently can be in this pursuit of wisdom. So the world offers to the prince this forbidden woman, uh, to herself, offers more than just love and intimacy. She offers a model of satisfaction to him that says it will work and give him all kinds of hope. But she offers a type of attraction that is fatal. 
and he does not know it. But God gives also lady wisdom to the prince, and she's a lady who's portrayed as wanting attention as well. Wisdom is furious, it says, as she's calling out. She's ignored. She's spurned. And so she calls out to everyone and anyone that might even hear her voice, proving that she is more worthy to be heard than anything else. In fact, if you don't have to go there now, but in chapter 8, we see that wisdom needs humanity. Wisdom calls out to him. She desires to be expo- expressed through men. She searches the world for those that can inhabit her because her greatest joy is to be living in a human mind and soul. So this is Lady Wisdom who cries out for attention and finally captures his attention in this final chapter. So this is the personification of wisdom. What does Proverbs 31 represent? First and foremost, Lady Wisdom wants to marry him. The queen approves of this union. And with that in mind, this worthy woman of Proverbs 31 is the personification of wisdom as painted through the likeness of this final woman in Proverbs, especially because in this way, we see the idea of Lady Wisdom and the excellent wife forming kind of an envelope around the entire book. Now, what manifested in the earlier part of the book now comes to fruition in the final part. And so on one level, this is entirely true. And these these parallels are amazing. I just want to set this in contrast to you so you know I'm not making this up. First, let me show you some of them. An amazing parallel of these two ladies, Lady Wisdom and Proverbs 31, is that they're both, there's a high premium, it says in the scripture, of finding both of them. We are called to find both Lady Wisdom and the noble woman. So while Proverbs 31.10 says, an excellent wife who can find, we see that Proverbs 8.35 reads concerning Lady Wisdom, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. These women are to be sought. In addition to Proverbs 31.10, asking the rhetorical question about who can find a wife of noble character, the mother adds that her value is far above jewels, if you heard it read. And as soon as she does, of course, you go back to Proverbs 3.15 and, and chapter 8.11, where Solomon describes the value of wisdom as being more than precious jewels. So both the search for wisdom and the search for the Proverbs 31 princess are depicted as a divine treasure hunt for this young prince who has enough sense to seek them. So I put this out there before you, just so you know, clearly the book of Proverbs presents this princess as both a personification of and presentation of the ideal woman of wisdom. She is Lady Wisdom personified at the end of this book. And you know, when you think of it, as one commentator put it, quote, it's nothing short of a brilliant stroke to delay his most convincing portrait of how to live wisely until the very end of the book. Of all the major themes and motifs about women are pulled together and concretized the concept of wisdom into a final summarizing statement by giving a word picture of a woman who embodies the essence of what it means to live wisely. Truly, end quote, that is a masterful, masterful concept. Now, once a woman realizes that the princess of Proverbs is a personification of wisdom and not a true princess, I know that this room probably is going to be filled with a lot of sighs of relief. Uh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew she couldn't be the real thing. It's a personification. He said it right there. Uh, This is theory. This isn't actual. (laughs) But before you celebrate too long, you need to understand a second aspect of this princess that needs to be explored. Not only is she seen as the personification of wisdom theologically, but also the protector of kings 
contextually. She's also seen as the protector of kings contextually. And I, I just think this is fascinating. I, I have already said that the mother queen in Proverbs 31 presents this princess to her son, listen, as the antidote, the antidote to what her prince son really needs. Uh, to what I mean by that, if, if he would only cling to the purifying effects of this princess that she's about to present to him, then he would protect himself and his kingdom from falling under the weight of his own crippling, incapacitating sin. Now, I want you to show you why I say this and how it's brought out in the kind of theme-by-theme theme context of this chapter. And by the way, this is one of the most wonderful aspects of this godly princess that you could ever hope to find for this young prince, that to marry her would be to give him everything he needs for success and sanctification. Everything he needs is balanced with her. And I say that because everything we see this mother is pleading for him to possess is fulfilled in the exact qualities that she, the Proverbs 31 woman, already possesses. So this princess is to be the spiritual, get this, emotional, literal protection that he needs to guard himself and the kingdom Let me do some comparisons to kind of show you what I mean by this, how this princess of Proverbs is the exact antidote what the queen mother is concerned about what her son will need. Now, remember, in the very first nine verses of this, we have a whole different sense here as the mother is speaking through the king about what it is that he should want and what he should be. Look at me at the mother's first warning, verse 3, don't give your strength to women, meaning forbidden women. That's countered three times by the strength of the princess of Proverbs, what she possesses. She is girded with strength. She has strong arms, verse 17. And strength is her clothing, verse 25. In fact, she's called the woman of strength in verse 10, which is translated by the Legacy Standard Bible as excellent. It's the same Hebrew word that Lemuel's mother used in verse 3 to speak of the forbidden woman who takes from him his strength. She takes his strength, or uh, legacy says also his excellencies. She takes the excellencies, but the woman of Proverbs, the woman who is the princess of Proverbs, has everything he needs to counteract what she takes. This woman is truly strong. This woman doesn't take his strength. She gives strength. The idea here is, don't you dare give your strength away to forbidden women, but instead you must multiply your strength by finding a woman of strength like this woman, the princess of Proverbs. So the princess of Proverbs not only does not take away his strength like the forbidden woman, but instead she gives strength to the home. She doesn't hurt him. She, verse 12 of chapter 31, does him good all the days of his life. The mother warns against drunkenness, in verse uh, 4 and 7, because it's going to make the prince forget that his duties to the needy in his kingdom are alive, while the princess of Proverbs vigilantly watches over the ways of her household in verse 27. So the mother says, don't get drunk so you can make sure that you oversee the kingdom. And then she tells him the princess of Proverbs watches over her household or her kingdom. The princess of Proverbs doesn't use her charm or beauty like the forbidden woman to seduce or deceive which has been the way she's been depicted back in chapter 6. She instead attracts him with the love and fear that she has for God, as we see in verse 30. Let me give you another example. The mother exhorts the prince to provide wine to the poor so they forget their poverty. The princess of Proverbs extends her hands, verse 20, to the poor. She provides food for her own household and her maidservants. Without her supply, they would be in need, verse 15. 
Again, the mother exhorts the prince twice in verse 8 and 9 to open his mouth for the rights of the people to speak who have no platform, while the princess of Proverbs in verse 26 opens her mouth in wisdom and grants kindness to those who are implied less fortunate than her. The mother speaks of the prince shall rule over those who are speechless and bitter in heart in verse 6 and 8, but the princess of Proverbs rules over those in her household and they are given the speech of praise and applaud her continuously in verses 28 and 31. So what I'm trying to set up for you here, if you're following this, is the greatest contribution, her greatest contribution to the kingdom, this Proverbs princess, is by taking care of the king. And she does that by modeling for him in the home what he should be on the throne. Let me say that again. She does this by modeling for him in the home what he should be on the throne. Proverbs 12, 4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. So this gives us what I believe is a completely, entirely new perspective on this woman, if Proverbs 31. Though she is a literal embodiment of wisdom itself, she must also be an actual person that can exist for her example is given to this prince as an antidote for everything that tempts him. So he understands that she really is what he needs to govern the people rightly. Behind every successful prince is a princess. He needs to be selfless like her. He needs to be driven like her. He needs to be pampering his kingdom and not his own appetite as she does. He needs to stop using his power for his own self-abuse and wake up to the fact that he should be like her, the one who lives to protect the lives of others. She will do it in the home so he can do it in the nation. He needs her to save him from himself and his kingdom from ruin. For what she is in the home, he must be on the throne. And ladies, I just think this takes a whole level of, of being a mother and being a wife to a very elevated place A man can be tempted by his own carnality to sin, but your godly example can rescue him from himself and protect your marriage as well. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, It sounds like a commercial. Not only is the princess of Proverbs a reality in theologically, she is the personification of wisdom, and contextually she's the protector of kings. She is everything he needs to rule rightly, But now we're going to see that descriptively, she's also the portrait of a princess. The portrait of a princess. She's the living painting of what it is that he must seek for a princess. Now, number three, portrait of a princess. This woman is more than a personification of wisdom. She's more than a protector of kings. She is a real princess. Why do I say that? Well, let me unfold this to you before you panic. Uh, First of all, the woman described here in verses 10 through 31 is most likely not a queen. She clearly is the kind of woman who could become a princess. She is the kind of woman a prince uh, should be. She's the kind of woman a prince should seek after. She is really what a princess should be in the way she lives. So this is really a picture of what a true princess really is. Now, as you're wrapping your head around that, in the text, she's not presented as a queen. In the text, she's not presented as a princess. But she possesses the qualities that all queens and princesses must possess if they dare call themselves by that title. And I will show you why I say that in just a moment. Now, some commentators, if you're following, 
say that because this description of Proverbs 31 woman doesn't seem to be describing a literal queen, that somehow that in and of itself should be enough evidence to kind of disconnect this portion of the section of Scripture away from the pleading mother, and it's now in a different category, to say it in a different way. Though some would affirm that King Lemuel's mother is still the one speaking in verses 10 and following, they also at the same time believe that now she has shifted away from warning her son about women and wine to now encouraging a different kind of audience, notably the common man, as to what kind of wife he should pursue, which has never made sense to me. And I think that one miscalculation of disconnecting the first part from the second part has really caused a a big confusion about this beautiful story. Contextually, King Lemuel's mother is still speaking to her prince son, even in verse 10 and following. So now she shifts, if you're following me, from speaking to the kind of woman that he should find to be his princess, and she's implicating that that kind of woman doesn't seem to live in a palace. Then maybe she's simply saying, you're not going to find the princess that you're looking for in a palace. You're going to find Cinderella somewhere else. Okay, is that fair? You're, you may not see her in the way, because she's described not as a princess and not as a, not as a queen. You're going to find her someone else. So the thing I'm trying to protect you from in verses 1 through 9 is now I'm going to show you how it's manifested in a true woman. So she is now going to shift away, warning about women and wine to now the kind of woman that is going to be his princess. It's as if kings, the king's mother is saying, I have seen more royal behavior in the home of this woman than I ever saw in the queen's court. It's more of a queen than the queen herself. Now remember this, in Solomon's time, a prince or a king would marry a princess. It was always for political alliances. You probably know that. You've studied history. These were women who were like royal pawns, if you will, kind of like a Trojan horse to infiltrate into the new palace kind of undetected and then, of course, spread the cancer of false religion into the king's heart and the nation will thus betray the king's God and his calling. And so, as we know, this all happened to Solomon. No real princesses, no real princesses were strength stealers. Real princesses were strength stealers. They were political parasites, but not this woman that he's about to describe. True, she's not portrayed here as a princess. Again, she's presented as a married woman who is the wife of an undefined influential husband. But she is at the same time also presented as having the qualities that a prince should seek if he were to find himself a princess. And you know what makes this even clearer? I believe the king's mother is presenting to her son a woman who is a royal blend of herself and the biblical heroine that we know as as Ruth. And I say that, and we're not going to get into this deeply, but there's at least eight shared character traits between the princess of Proverbs and the character of Ruth herself. And I can't get into all of it right now, but none is more apparent than when Ruth 3.11, Boaz says that she's a woman of excellence, which is the exact same description that we have here in verse 10. So it seems in some ways, if you're thinking through this, Ruth was the model for this queen mother during her life, but maybe not completely. She had some of her attributes. Either way, this prince son, listen, is called to find a woman who will save his life, who will save the throne and save the life of the nation as well. And he is to look for an unwed woman to become his princess using this example of what a wedded woman of excellence is like once she's married. Just think about it. So though the queen mother here isn't 
describing a queen literally, we'll see that this woman has the same benefits category by category that a queen would have. This woman has the same privileges that a queen might have. In fact, her husband, who is the same kind of influential man who would sit at the gate and get respect just as the kings themselves did in his day at the gate. She's married to a man who possessed the most similar prototype to a king imaginable without being a king. This woman is the portrait of a princess for all princesses to follow after and all princes to seek. She personifies wisdom, she protects her husband, and she's a portrait of what a true princess is, which leads me to some general thoughts just for you right now. True princess comes from the fields of hard work, like Ruth, right? Just remember, a true princess, like the young Shulamite bride in the Song of Solomon, who was Solomon's first wife before he lost his way, who worked hard with her hands and whose skin was tanned from that work in the field, who was humble in her soul, that's the kind of princess that your son should seek. So ladies and gentlemen, think of it this way. Don't you ever despise that young girl who's working at In-N-Out Burger because she could be a princess, that's exactly what the, impl- incl- the inclination is here, the implication. I can't even speak. The, to imply, it's implying it. <laughs> because biblically, and I talk for a living, it's weird. Uh, because biblically, all godly princesses are created in the field of hard work. That's why Ruth and the bride of Solomon's song, both are workers in the field, and yet rich men and a king choose them for their bride. You see, a woman who can take care of the fields is a woman who can take care of a family. The woman who can take care of the field is a woman who can take care of a family. She lives to care for others. She works to care for others. This is the one you marry, that one right there. And you know you really want a Cinderella. You you, you really do want a Cinderella who served her sisters in humility way before she was given the glass slippers. You, You don't want a Kardashian who already believes that she's a princess. What did I say? I'm sorry. Uh, someone told me about this person. I... Kardashian already believes she's a princess. You want to find a woman who doesn't know she's a princess and then crown her as one. So you tell your sons they're not to look for princesses sitting in the palace, but they're to view her working in the home. So guess what, mothers? This real woman that he's supposed to find is presented to him as a woman who's already married. She isn't portrayed as a single gal. She isn't seen as some girl away at college. She is painted as a woman who already has a family and a husband. So what does that tell you? It tells you that King Lemuel's mother isn't endorsing polygamy. Of course not. It says that how can a single prince study the ways of a married woman to find out who he should marry? How could he do that? That's right. The woman this prince is to find is living in his own home. She is you, mother. She is you. He's supposed to study you to know what kind of woman he should marry. And you need to tell him that. And husbands, you need to tell your sons that. The whole family needs to understand that your prince is to find the kind of woman you model to him in the home. Now, what are you supposed to model? What is that behavior he is to study so he understands who should he crown as his princess? Well, look at the contrast here. This woman should help the poor. The pleading of verse 5 
through verse 7 for the prince to not forget the poor is contrasted with verse 20 with this woman's tendency to extend her hand to the poor. Also, she's to be kind. The cry for the prince to open his mouth to plead the cause of the needy in verses 8 and 9 is contrasted with Our Lady opening her mouth in verse 26 with wisdom and kindness towards her family. She possesses as a woman everything he should possess as a king, for she fulfills as a princess everything that the queen mother desires for her son as a prince. What this prince needs is a woman is a princess unlike the princesses of his day. What he needs is a princess who was not born in a palace, who was not born with a silver spoon in her mouth, who was not born with political interest or foreign gods as her masters. No, what this young man needs, this prince, if he's ever going to save his kingdom, is a woman like this one to become his princess so that she might save him from himself. And I want to take the remaining portion of our time just to release the ladies here Uh, of some unnecessary burdens so that you might think about this woman rightly because I believe most women see Proverbs 31 as so unobtainable that this pursuit of her role and and banning certain kind of attributes that they might have to fulfill that, I don't know, it just kind of comes with people with a certain kind of smugness and that I believe is totally unnecessary. And I want to kind of set this in 3D for you. So what I want to do is present you just some three unnecessary burdens real quick as a tag to what I'm saying. And three unnecessary burdens I want you to think through. And I want you to understand that you shouldn't be burdened about as well as those things that you need to consider because the question is, do they apply to you? That's what we're going to find out. So let's first look at unnecessary burdens. I kind of Brought them, along, uh, brought them along with this kind of phraseology. These are going to be commands, kids, and coins. You can just put that down, commands, kids, and coins, and we'll talk about that. So let's just look at commands first. I want you to understand commands. Let me lighten your burden um, by saying that this, the woman you see here, what, is, what a literal princess to seek after is a literal princess And though she stands for the culmination of wisdom herself, though she can be understood as an example of what every woman should aspire to become, contextually, being this kind of woman is not presented to us, listen, as a command that you must follow. It's not presented as a command, but rather this is presented to us as a casting call for the role of princess, okay? You want to be this princess, you can aspire toward that, but this is not a command of God that you be this. So if you want to audition for the part of a princess, that's fine. You can do that. But this is not a standard for all women. This princess plays a very specific role in this context, and that role is important for us to understand. But there are no commands for you in this section to obey. Okay, you good with that? I thought it would be helpful uh, because there's nothing there. Second, I think it can lighten your burden a little bit about kids. I say that because when King Lemuel's mother presents this woman for our consideration, she presents her at a certain season of life. Very, very important. If you notice, she has children old enough, in verse 28, to evaluate her efforts and praise her. So this isn't a picture of a woman who's raising infant children. This is not a picture of a woman who is balancing the checkbook with one hand and changing diapers with the other hand. This is, that would be horrible. Uh, No, rather, this is zeroing in on one woman's life once she's freed from the rigors of early child rearing. This is focused on a time in her life when she could contribute to her home 
in a direct way because she's no longer distracted with babies. She has children that have enough discernment to recognize her efforts, to praise her for them. So we're talking at least eight years old and older. This is the woman that is pictured. So many times mothers are overwhelmed with what they see here because they try to do it all. I understand that. You want to be a woman of excellence. But, but that isn't the scene here, just so you know. This, because this woman has older children and she's affluent enough to have maidens that are portrayed as her servants to help her, now you're going to find out she's free to pursue other directives, other directions of, of providing for her household. And I believe that she's pictured this way at this particular stage of life because it would better parallels the stage that would depict the life of the king. So follow me here, follow me. As a king has certain responsibilities that he's called upon to fulfill, a king also has servants who help him administrate the oversight of people. A king is freed from constant involvement with the people he serves so that he can direct and plan and involve himself in deciding more judicial matters. So the depiction of the mother at this stage of life is a better parallel, I believe, for the prince to consider so that the contrast is clear for him to understand. She is ruling over her home like he should rule the kingdom. She is to rule the home like he is to rule from the throne. So we see here at this stage of life that brings that contrast out into even more, uh, uh, more vividly. So ladies, you know, relax. Uh, uh, this, this portrait is not to be seen as an additional burden for you to struggle with. Just take care of this season that you're in. Just take care of the season of life that you're in because this is a portrait of a woman who is free to work in the way she does because of her stage of her life and her husband's affluence. Which brings me to the third area of this. I want to talk about coins just for a second which is a short way to remember that this woman's husband makes enough money to allow her to do the things that she does here, which, of course, is meant to parallel what a queen's experience would be living in the wealth of a king. Her husband funds all her endeavors. This woman is not seen as scrapping together all the odds and ends that might make a household survive by making clothes and making food and cutting coupons so they can make rent. This isn't the picture here at all. In fact, it doesn't even have a... Hebrew word for coupons. Uh, In fact, it's just the opposite. This woman doesn't need to work. Very important, underline it. This woman doesn't need to work. This woman doesn't need to stay up all night sewing. This woman doesn't need to go down to the docks to sell her goods to the tradesmen. She doesn't need to do any of those things. In fact, that's the point. The point is she doesn't need to do what she does, but she does what she does in spite of her affluence. Though she has all that she needs, she works as if she doesn't have all that she needs. So often people, young women, I think, see this portion of Proverbs 31, and they believe it's calling them to work. They, they believe that this models a woman who's pulling her weight in the marriage and you know, going to have a vocation just like her husband. And, and sometimes husbands demand that their wives work too because they see Proverbs 31, and, and they go, uh, you know, yeah, honey, uh, make sure that you read that really carefully because this looks really good. <laughs> You know, but this woman doesn't have to work. This, this woman doesn't have to work. It's her husband's affluence that allows her to work. Though most women wouldn't, that's just the contrast. So just, you know, sit back, soak this up. Uh, this wealthy woman is not like the unusual, is not like an unusual wealthy woman who didn't have to work. This wealthy woman works anyway. This is very important. Though she has made servants, though she imports fine foods, though she has real estate and vineyard, she still works. 
She's still investing in her home. She could have somebody else make her children's clothes, but she chooses to do it herself because she wants them to have the best. She clothes them and by herself, and in verses 21 through 22, she does it like royalty. She's counterculture. She's not what we think of a princess being. We, we think of princesses wearing linen gloves and having servants and sleeping uncomfortable on mattresses that have even a little pee between the two of them. No, she's, she's not that way at all. She's, she's to be like her husband, and her husband is to be like her. They are both servants of those to whom they have been commissioned to serve. Though they have been given great privilege, in some ways they act as if they had no privilege. They act as if they have no privilege. And I believe she is purposely portrayed as a woman of affluence because that's what the prince would eventually have a wife living under, his affluence. But the reason that this is the backdrop of the scene is to make this statement and I think this is the most essential, that given her position in life, she is to live as if she wasn't rich. That given the fact that she had wealth, she's not to indulge herself in wealth. She lives as a servant, though she has servants. She lives as a servant, though she has... She's to model to him what he should be, a king who did not indulge himself with the privileges of the crown. Remember, verses 1 through 9, he's already warned about the fact that The king is hardwired from the get-go to abuse authority with women and wine. But he must be a king that sees his responsibilities as only rights. He's, He's not to spoil himself. He is to spoil the people. Though she serves and has servants, she rules her household as a servant because she's a picture of how to rule this kingdom. She is a servant king. Like a servant king, she's modeling to him what that looks like in their home. Look, you cannot escape the teaching of Scripture modeled perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. A king is to come to serve and not be served. It was true for Jesus. It was true for David and Solomon and for this prince as well. And she models that same truth as a mother and wife in the home. So to summarize it where we are today, this portrait of a Proverbs 31 woman is not a command to become like this woman. Uh, This is the kind of woman a prince should seek to be a queen. This is the resume of a princess, not a homemaker, okay? And even if she was a homemaker, still she's seen at the stage of her life where she does, what she does is past the point of having infants in the home. She does what she does once they're older and she has help in taking care of them and all that happens because her husband is affluent. She's free to do all that she does because he funds her. She is financially able to do what she does. So she buys a vineyard with her own money, right? True, but where did she get the money to buy the vineyard? From the clothes she sold. And where did she get the money to buy the linen and flax to make these clothes? From her husband's estate. Yes, she prospered. Yes, she multiplied what he gave her until it was more. Yes, she's pictured as an entrepreneur extraordinaire here. But the initial funding came from her husband. It takes money to make money. It's always the same truth. And the reason all this is portrayed here the way it is is to provide for this young prince, a woman at a particular stage in life that parallels as closely as possible not just who she must be but what he must be as a servant king. I believe that's what we have before us in Proverbs 31. So you don't need to look at this chapter, ladies, and feel burdened because it isn't talking about you. This entire book has been a training manual for a preparation of a prince to become a king. And here at the very end of this play, the Spirit of God merely is telling us that the wisest thing the prince could ever do is protect himself and his kingdom to marry this kind of woman. 
She finds and produces clothing for others. She studies and buys a field and plants a vineyard with her own money, and not because she's a wine connoisseur, not because she wants her own bank account, but rather because her whole life is poured out for others. She reinvests in her family. She is consumed with doing good to her household, which is an outworking of her fear of God, namely to free her husband to do the work he's been given by God and by being consumed with the work that she's been given by God to provide for the needs of her household. And she is consumed with those under her care. She not only frees him to be uh, the same man that he should be before the nation, but at the same time models for him within their own home the attitude and selfless work ethic that he should have on the throne. Now, someone might say, isn't this a contradiction of Titus 2? Um, the wife is to be the keeper of the house. Not at all. In fact, rather contradicting Titus 2, it defines Titus 2. Being a keeper of the home does not mean the woman never leaves the house. Uh, I don't know why people think that. It, it doesn't mean that this woman should never be enterprising. Uh, doesn't, it doesn't mean that she can't work to supply additional good to her home. No, it merely means that everything she does is for the home and from the home, and the home is her headquarters, the main sphere of her influence. And along these lines, let me make just a comment, husbands. If your wife has a genuine interest, a genuine talent to do something, whatever it is, and you have the means to allow her to do that particular thing, then do it. Make her happy. Why wouldn't you do that? Why, why, mama's happy. Everybody's happy. You know that. So, so don't come to her and say, hey, honey, I'm a little short this week on the rent, so you think you might be able to get a job, you know, twirling those pizza signs around and get a little extra dough. Remember Proverbs 31? <laughs> I'm just saying, it's biblical. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. If you're short, dear husband, you need to get a second job, okay? So it's your responsibility to provide because the implication here is this woman works because she wants to work, not because she needs to work. If she needs to work, then the whole underlying purpose of why it was written is destroyed. She is already affluent. She doesn't need to flip burgers to make ends meet. The husband isn't saying to this princess, how's the vineyard coming? And... Uh, <laughs> He doesn't say anything. He's not kind of wondering what's kind of the proceeds. He allows her to use his resources as she wants, and he trusts her because she is driven to do good all the days of his life, and he knows that. Now, real quick, some of you might be thinking, though it's true that sometimes, especially these days, you might see a wife being the main source of income when a guy's going through seminary or something like that, but that would be for a very short season of life. That's not the pattern of life. That is just a, a small area of life. Now, what we see here is a woman who has resources and her husband releases her to invest her resources so that they both can enjoy contributing to the health of the home as well as contributing to the financial strength of the home. She reinvests what she makes to the home not out of need, but out of love. Now, you might say, Tom, how can you make more out of nothing? At the end of the day, we only have exactly in our home what we need and no more. So what's the implication for me? We're, we're hanging on by a thread. My husband isn't affluent. I don't have the ability to buy materials so I can sew and sell and reinvest anything because there's no wiggle room for us. That's okay. Because the implication of the princess of Proverbs is this. 
because she fears God and because she recognizes the need to do good to her husband and household, she selflessly commits herself to doing more than was what it expected of her. She goes beyond her station to give her family the best she can, to model for him that he should go beyond his work ethic as well. I'm going to show you the kind of person that wants the best for their family to incentivize and inspire you to do the same. And when you do that, not only do you smile, but all who know you smile as well. As we see at the very end, give her for the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This princess lives to honor God, to do good to her husband and family. She, like all godly wives, is the one who ultimately is going to get a standing ovation from those that love her. Her children rise up and bless her. As her husband, he also praises her, saying, Many daughters have done excellently, but you have done, gone above them all. So you know who's clapping the loudest at the very end of this play of the book of Proverbs? It's your sons and daughters. It's your sons and daughters because now your son knows what kind of woman he's supposed to marry and your daughter knows what kind of woman she's become to become a woman consumed with doing what is right before God, doing good for her husband and doing good for her household. So now the play is ended. The curtain is coming down. The prince has found his princess and wisdom laughs out loud while the entire audience cries encore. For we have just seen and understand and know deep in our hearts that they lived happily ever after. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the attentiveness of these dear people, and thank you for what your scriptures tell us. Help us to be more clear, more resolute uh, to what it is that your Bible teaches, and that is that a woman and a man really need one another to be able to balance one another and to see that the woman fulfills the man and what it is that he lacks, and he then takes her modeling and her illustration of life and uses that in whatever endeavor you have him in. Father, help us to understand these things, be discerning in these things, and to be blessed. And we're asking this in the name of the one who came and died and rose again, Christ Jesus. Amen.